transmitted live across the Atlantic 3,000 miles and five hours backwards in time. We are now getting your sound clearly and we are looking forward with great anticipation to seeing your program. Hello and welcome to another edition of Match Report. I'm Jack here with Manny. Uh, how's it going, man? It's going good, man. We had a brilliant amount of games this week to go through, man. How was your weekend? What did you get up to? Yeah, it was pretty good. They just announced just now that mm-hmm. uh, MetLife Stadium uh, in East Rutherford, New Jersey, which is right outside New York City, so right in my backyard, will be hosting the World Cup final. Nice, uh, nice. I don't get my tickets, but somehow I got to scheme my way into that stadium for the <laughs> big, big show. I think the, the football gods will smile on us and hopefully we'll both be there, man. How about the rest of your week? You um, you traveled for a bit, right? Yeah, I went out to L.A. to mm-hmm. hang out with the L.A. Galaxy a bit. Uh, nice. The MLS is, you know, looking to pull out all the stops because... The season's about to resume, and uh, LA Galaxy's season opener is uh, later on this month against none other none other than Inter Miami and Lionel nice. Messi and his extended squad of former Barcelona greats. <laughs> uh, but it was cool to you know check out their facilities over there, and we were supposed to play some small sided games and get out on the field, but of course, the one time I go to LA, uh, it was a torrential downpour. But uh, I got to chat to Ricky Puj, uh, mm-hmm. who uh, was in the Barcelona Academy, came up, a, you know, a little before, you know, the Gavis and Pedris of the world, but another, you know, exciting attacking midfielder from the La Masia, and who shared a, a locker room with Messi and Suarez and Jordi Alba and all those guys, Sergio Busquets who he'll be playing uh, later this month. So that was an interesting chat as well. I'll have more on that soon. But there was plenty going on back in the Europe from which he came, uh, particularly in the Premier League this weekend, although we'll get to the Super Sunday that we just had. Uh, But the Premier League, 40 goals in the Premier League this weekend, nearing the all-time record for a match week of 44 which could be broken wow. at Brentford, Man City, if it really pops off tomorrow. And I, I'm interested to see what side uh, Pep comes out with in that Brentford game. But yeah, man, so many goals, some pretty poor defending over the weekend. I thought Newcastle conceding four goals, um, looting themselves, scoring four goals, and, and looking like they probably should have seen out a result. It was, yeah, some surprise, some surprise results out there, man. But um it's looking like everyone's kind of going at each other now, which is just great to watch and great to see. Yeah, Luton Town with consecutive four-goal showings. They dismantled Brighton in midweek. And then, you know, they put up a good fight against Newcastle. It looked like they were going to win the game at various points. Um, it was big, you know, big all around for the um, relegation race. Uh, the relegation fight is obviously, you know, it's been a bit lackluster in that Sheffield United and Burnley have just been really poor. And I think Burnley even coming back, showing the fight to get back to 2-2. I just think they're kind of doomed. But yeah. Luton, I, you know, I, I think we talked about it, you know, at least a month ago. Uh, and, you know, I've thought that Luton have a chance to survive. There's something about their story. Uh, maybe mm. it's just the romance of it with their tiny little stadium built into the <laughs> housing block. 
Uh, but you know, they they know how to get it done at this level. It, it's I think they they play better stuff than a Stoke City or you know a Sean Dyche Burnley. But there's a bit of a streetwise element to it where they know they need to be physical. They need to win those battles, score from headers and other set mm-hmm. pieces. Yeah, they're kind of like the the old school typical English side, but then they sprinkled a bit of technical genius. And, and I think a great shout for the England squad and potentially a Euro spot is Ross Barkley. You know, you're seeing Gareth Southgate's flying all the way to to uh, to Ajax and, and Holland to go and watch Henderson, but then there's great British talent, you know, English talent that's happening over here, and there's some pretty interesting names. I even saw mainly being thrown in the hat as a potential Euro spot you know, pick for, for Southgate, but Ross Barkley's been, he's been brilliant. Um, but yeah, I, I love the, the doggedness. Um, I love the, the tenacity that they have. I love the wingback play, both, both wingbacks for, for Luton really, you know, are a threat constantly and put great deliveries in the box. And when you've got a big target man, he knows, you know, the hardest thing in football is scoring, you know, and, and a lot of their, their chances are coming from wingback play. Um, you know, or, or, or cutbacks into the box with a third man run from Barkley or, or Chong. And Luton look, look, look exciting, man. Um, and another team that scored a lot of goals this weekend was, was uh, Aston Villa. They looked a bit shaky in the midweek game um, last week against Chelsea in the cup, but they, they really turned it around. But everyone's, everyone's shipping goals in against Sheffield United, to be fair. So that could be a one-off. Yeah, Sheffield United, I think, have a chance to go down as one of the poorest sides we've seen in the Premier League. Not quite a Derby County, but mm. there's really no belief in the side, and there has not been from day one that they'll stay up, and including from the ownership. I mean, I don't think that they really approach the summer transfer window uh, in a way where you would really believe they think they're staying up. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's, it's kind of like going straight back down. Um they they lost probably the one of their better attacking players in Ilimin and Dae to Marseille. And I think that was just a bit of quality they did have going forward that, that's out of the side. And there's just not much belief. And I don't think the fans have much belief. Uh, I think the best thing for them is to try to hold on to the squad, um, do well in the championship next year and come back up. But really, you know, to make it in this league, it, it, you do need the backing from your owners. You do need the backing the transfer market. And you have to make really astute signings and I just don't think they did that so they really give themselves the best chance to really survive in this league at all and Crystal Palace also sinking down the league looking like they're going to get roped into that relegation fight I do think that Roy Hodgson's days may be numbered Uh, he hasn't been helped that you know his two flair players his two stars Eberece Eze and Michael Elise who I realized today uh both had a, uh, started out in Arsenal's academy, actually. Uh, they quickly sort of were released or moved on. Uh, we'll get to more academy talk in a bit. But yeah. all of Saturday's action was, was sort of a prelude to the Super Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were two or three very promising Premier League matches. Uh, and then there was a top-of-the-table clash in Italy, first against second. Uh, the Madrid derby, El Derby. Um, also uh, later in the day. But uh, the headline, I think, for people of our persuasion Mm. was Arsenal-Liverpool, you know, the game of the week in the Premier League. And, you know, we looked at the team sheets coming into this. We we were on WhatsApp chatting about this. And 
I, you know, for a couple weeks now, we've been questioning the Liverpool midfield. And, you know, we got the Scousers telling us that, uh, you know, what are we talking about? Curtis Jones is completely at the level. And how dare you say anything about Harvey Elliott? But I looked at these team sheets and I, you know, we said to each other, Arsenal could dominate this midfield, especially with the loss of Dominic Shabajlai in the warm-up. They just looked a little lightweight. You know, McAllister is a, a pretty passer, an incisive passer, actually, and a good player. But you just wonder about his physicality in a battle with Declan Rice. And even, you know, Jorginho, who I've been hoping would come into the side for these big games alongside Declan Rice, assuming that Thomas Party is not and will never be fit again, which seems to be a fair assumption. But Jorginho came in and kept it ticking alongside uh, Declan Rice, and that allowed Declan Rice to think less about keeping the team ticking over with the constant metronome of passing like you would get out of a Chavi at Barcelona, and allowed him to go hunt and be sort of the SEAL team, the special forces, putting out fires, winning back possession wherever he wanted midfield. And he absolutely dominated the Liverpool midfield. Yeah, um, like like right, rightly so. It was a case of he was going to take control of this game through the midfield. Um, and, and I thought Arsenal definitely, on paper, had the better midfield. Um, playing at home as well with the atmosphere and the backing of the fans, I thought we were going to be quite hostile for, for Liverpool. Um, and it was a complete domination for me in that midfield bat- battle. Uh, McAllister is incisive. He can pick out passes. He's got a great shot in him as well. I really think he, he's quite wasted in that deep um, number six role for Liverpool. Um, but I loved I loved the, the balance between Rice, um, Jorginho and Odegaard. And I think it's not a coincidence that a lot of Odegaard's best performances this season have been when he's had those two behind him to just allow him to play in that final third and pick out passes. Um, Declan Rice was, was overpowering Gravin Birch as well. So it wasn't just a McAllister, I think, a lot of the time, the second ball, the second loose balls, um, Arsenal were all over them. Uh, and, you know, the ball in behind as well was was really where they were quite dangerous with Martelli's pace. It was really, really surprising to see him actually outpace Konate for one of the chances that Saka nearly scored in the first half, where he completely blitzed past him. Um, but no, no, you know, with that foundation of the midfield, it really gave Arsenal the front foot to really take the game to, to Liverpool. And then another... Uh, commendable performance from Havertz, I thought as well. I thought he did really well with his hold-up play, bringing in others. Um, he could have been maybe a bit more clinical with his chance, but it still led to Saka's goal. So I think there's a lot of great performances throughout the throughout the, the Arsenal side. Havertz was doing that thing you need to do in big games, which is sometimes somebody needs to pick up the ball and carry it, uh, relieve the pressure, gets get you out of you know danger, out of whatever pressure. But you know, I don't, I never felt Liverpool exerted that much pressure in this game. Um, I thought Arsenal, this they trounced them. I really thought Arsenal trounced Liverpool from minute one. Um, it, they were killing them. You know, for once it's nice having watched Alexander Zinchenko get targeted with long balls over the top uh, in every match that we play where he, where he <laughs> starts. We finally did the same to somebody else where we said, okay, you're going to have Trent drifting out of the right back position. You're going to leave Konate alone. Ibrahimo Konate alone against one of the fastest winger, wingers in the league in Gabriel Martinelli. 
And we said, we're just going to feed him all game. He's going to be our outlet. He's going to run at you. He's going to create problems in that space that Trent is vacating, just as Zinchenko has problems when he's, you know, transitioning between midfield and defense. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, when TAA made the mistake of staying out there, he got absolutely put on toast by yeah. Gabriel Martinelli. Um, I, I thought, you know, and Ibra, uh, Ibrahima Konate, who is a great athlete and has good recovery pace, was also looking like he could not handle the threat of, of Martinelli down the wing. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and, and I think Gomez did quite well in containing Saka to a degree. Saka had to drift in infield a, a bit more to find a bit of space and be a bit more threatening because I thought out wide... Um, he was being doubled up as well with Diaz because Diaz is a really hardworking uh, winger for, for Liverpool. But just to transition the, the balls in behind, um, winning those second balls, winning the ball back quickly, and Jorginho was playing a lot of those one-touch passes that meant it released to Arsenal really quickly. He's not you know the most powerful, the most physically imposing um, player in the middle there, Jorginho, but he's very quick with his brain. You know The way he can just turn over possession really quickly, you can find that pass to just release, you know, the, the forward players. Um, and, and he's got a great reading of the game at interceptions. And I think that that foundation, obviously with Saliba and Gabriel, they had great games as well. Unfortunate with the goal that they conceded, you know, it almost came out of nowhere. And Arsenal, they did dominate for the majority of that game. Zinchenko had a solid game as well before he came off. It just was an all-round really professional and really purposeful performance from Arsenal. It, it did look like they were hungry for it um, and they didn't want it to be another one of those games that looked back and thought, we've dominated here, we've created a few chances, yet we haven't got the result that we deserve. And I think the performance and result was the story deserves from Arsenal side. And hopefully, you know, for the rest of the fans, um, Arsenal fans, even United fans, I don't want Liverpool to win the league, it might start showing some, some cracks in, in their performances. You know, for the next few games because the next big big game in a few weeks is against City so if they're still only a couple of points ahead could be turned over yeah I think Arsenal were eager to remind people that the last season was not some fluke that they are actually a very talented outfit and as I've been saying for many weeks and catching a bunch of flack whenever we <laughs> clip it up I think Arsenal have a more talented squad and certainly a better midfield. You could say Liverpool are possibly better uh, in both boxes. But without Mo Salah there, the only attacker for Liverpool that I really rate is Diogo Jota. I think those are their two really quality attackers who are responsible for 80% of what we think of as the lethal Liverpool attack. Darwin didn't get a start today. I think he had some sort of uh, injury concern. I think they might have offered a little more threat, at least with his physical running in behind. It gives you something to think about. But even then, you have no no faith that he's going to finish off his chances. Um, and I think we managed to contain Diogo Jota, and that was really all that was required. Of course, after we got the deserved opener and I was – you know, writing in my notes, we need to get the second before halftime because I thought that, that Liverpool would adjust. We promptly give them an equalizer. <laughs> uh, but luckily, they gave us one back when we when when we got out there. And it was the much vaunted, uh, you know, spine of Liverpool that let them down. Just as, you know, I, I think probably the two best individual center backs in the league 
played in this game. They both made major mistakes for goals, although you could also ask questions about David Raya mm-hmm. in the Arsenal goal and uh, Allison in, in, for Liverpool. Um, but I think that they were they were generally exposed. They they were generally exposed. I I just don't think that this Liverpool team is quite as good as as the hype would have it, especially without Mo Salah and the team to to torment whoever's at left back for for Arsenal. Yeah, I think that with the form that Liverpool have been in um, and with the formidable players that they do have, a lot of teams almost are a bit resigned to having to just hold on for games and not really go at them. The moment you pull down that, you know, that mentality that, okay, we're going to really struggle here. Let's just play a game and play to our strength. You can get at, get at, at Liverpool. You've seen other teams do it, um, just not as often. And I think from, from the start, from the first whistle right to the end, Arsenal were, were consistent in their pressure and consistent in their going forward and really pressing Liverpool. Um, and then even with the changes that came on, you're seeing a great finish from Trossard as well. And that was just sheer determination and just, I'm going straight at them. You know, I'm going to run at them, see what they can do. He finds himself three and goal and, and a great finish through the legs of the keeper. So Liverpool are, are not the formidable team that, you know, their form has, has shown. Um, we've always said it, even throughout their wins, that there seems like a side that, that can be can be got at and, you know there are some some holes and, and weaknesses in there in their squad, uh, their starting eleven, and just the, the, the patterns of play. Where you know I think Trent coming in maybe may have been a premature because of Conor Bradley's you know his father passing away. You know took him out of the side. Um, he wasn't at wasn't one of his great games, so maybe you know that that was a bit of a rushed um, rushed decision. Uh, Nunes I thought was harsh for him not to start this game as well. You know he's He's been in great goal-scoring form and constant threat as well, even if he's not, you know, the most prolific scorers. Um, but the key for for Arsenal keeping Liverpool's um, striking force, you know, quiet was keeping Jota quiet. You know, he didn't. He was finding himself having to drop a lot deeper into the into midfield just to pick up the ball and create something. He wasn't as close to goal as he usually is, and I think you know he was just running into a lot of traffic with the screening midfielders of, of Rice and and Jorginho. So it was a great, great gameplay from Arsenal. Uh, and every time you guys broke it, it looked like you could have you could have got a goal. Yeah, and I'm sure the Liverpool fans will come back and say, well, we don't have Wataro Endo. We don't have our full, uh, even our full strength midfield. But Curtis Jones, you know, again, two weeks ago, I was hearing about how Curtis Jones has had a phenomenal season. He's <laughs> 100% in their first choice midfield. And at one point, Ben White just absolutely skinned him uh, along the sideline. Nutmeg, see you later, with a little dink through his legs, with a little bloop, see you later. <laughs> I think that was in, that was indicative of the entire performance. I think Arsenal were running rings around this midfield. Mm. They lacked the physicality, but they also couldn't put their foot on the ball. You know, mm. McAllister, as much as we like his passing ability, was he thought he could have four touches in this midfield, and Declan Rice comes in with one of his telescopic legs, reaches around mm. for the hook tackle. They're going up the other way. You don't have that kind of time. And I think Arsenal set the pace and the pace was ferocious and yeah. Liverpool simply could not live with it, which is not something you expect from a Jurgen Klopp side. Usually, even if they don't set the pace when they're saying they're playing, say, Man City, they can match the intensity, survive and then hope to get to take their chances clinically when they came. 
none of that happened. There were no chances except for what Arsenal presented to them on a platter. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. There was that lack of athleticism, uh, and I think it was almost because Arsenal just didn't give them room to to get into their rhythm. You know, uh, Diaz, he's a lot more industrious when he does play. He was fairly quiet as well. Um, and Graven, Graven Birch, he was non-existent for me in, in the game. A couple of nice touches here and there, but he didn't really impose himself in the game. Um, when Harvey Elliott came on again, there, was, there wasn't much purpose in his play. Um, and yeah, the, the changes, apart from Nunes, didn't really do anything for them. Um, whereas you know every decision Arsenal seemed to be making was was yielding positive results. So even um, Kiwa coming on for Zinchenko, you guys did look a, a bit more solid. Um, he almost had a chance himself. I don't know how he found himself in the box for for that free header, but um, you know and and the go to substitution for for Arteta is always going to be Trossard for Martinelli, but it usually works. Um, and even Reese Nelson coming on there. Uh, I thought a couple of times he could have gone gone towards goal, but he played it safe and, and, and went backwards a few times. But um, you could see that the game plan was really to stretch Liverpool's defence and, and have them running the other way. And even Van Dijk, he didn't look as assured. Uh, and and it's, it's rare to see, you know, two or three of their players just off the pace uh, in such a high-state game. Yeah, you're right to point out Ryan Graveberg. I mean, I, I had a note on this. By halftime, I, was, I thought to myself... Has, have the commentators said this man's name one time? Like, has he been on the ball at all? I think Cody Gakpo was pretty anonymous. I thought yeah. it drove me crazy. I was yelling at the TV when we give Luis Diaz. I think eventually it was an OG. It was an own goal for Gabriel. But, you know, Luis yeah. Diaz rolls away celebrating. I'm thinking to myself, this man has been completely anonymous. He's done nothing. No. And we present him this advance on a silver platter because David Raya isn't moving his butt to get out there. And Saliba, once he sees that the goalkeeper's not moving, needs to put that out to out of play. We'll take a corner, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, but that was the only blemish on the copybook for for the Arsenal. I think, you know, it's one game, but it's a big game. They've now beaten Man City and Liverpool at home. Mm-hmm. I thought for the first half or most of the first half at Anfield, Arsenal had much the better of them. Um, I think that you know Arsenal had a bad time around the holidays where I think people were eager to reset the whole script, to, to reset the game of the title race and think, well, it's really Man City and Liverpool and Arsenal. You know, they'll, they're probably an, uh, the equivalent of AC Milan in Italy right now. You know, they're in third, but are they really in it? But I think we saw today that was mistaken. Uh, uh, it was the wrong uh, conclusion to come to because of a bad seven-game stretch. And seven games ain't nothing. But it, yeah. uh, it was an incorrect conclusion. Yeah, and it is always best to be chasing the pack uh, rather than, than be leading and, and holding out. So I I think it was probably a good position for Arsenal to be in, you know, for them to just be go, go about their business um, and then really putting in those performances just reminds everyone, no, we actually are here to stay and we do want to go for this, for this title. Um, but I still do think that the two stronger teams form-wise is City and Liverpool. But Arsenal's experience, especially from last season and now um, with, with, the, with the squad that they've built, I do think that they can they can overtake either side. Uh, I think a lot of it's going to go down to injuries and the injuries haven't been favourable for you guys so far. Uh, now, I hate to think what would happen if, if a 
a Rice or Saliba gets injured because you know you've had Jesus out, you've had Party out for the majority of the season. Timber hopefully comes back in the next couple of months, and that could be a boost. But are you going to see the best of him? You know, in the last the last quarter of the season. Um, you know, you're looking at City and they've got Haaland coming back. They've got De Bruyne back and full swing again. Um, and with with Liverpool, it's just it's just Salah that's out really. Um, don't know how serious that injury is, but I think a month out is what's been what's been touted. So things really going to go down to the wire, and, and it's a much better season to have three teams battling and chasing for it than you know previous seasons where it's either just been City leading the way or one or two teams like yourselves last season. But yeah, it's, it's looking like it's going to be a, a good half, a, a good finish to to the season. Yeah, I think you're right. Um that it's a better position for Arsenal to be in. I, I think it's just a fact of life that when Man United or Arsenal are involved in things like this, somehow 80% of the headlines are about them. I think yeah. Liverpool get some share of the headlines. City, it's just like a bland thing about how Pep is great the whole time, you know. Um, I would rather be in this position where it's like Liverpool and Man City, the two big teams of the last half decade, which is true. Um, but I think, you know, Arsenal have a lot to offer if, if they can keep up the goal scoring. It, you know, they ran out 3-1 winners here after Leandro Trossard iced the cake um, as, you know, he beat a man out, out wide with a very clever touch. And as you said, had a very determined run in there. And we'll see, yeah, we'll see if this is enough to, uh, you know, really reinstate Arsenal in the, in the title race. It's going to involve getting some results over the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Until the big one, that you know, the the really big ones come along again. Um, but Manchester United just mentioned them. Might as well move to their match, uh, mm-hmm. which I recommended people watch in the football weekend, uh, thinking that West Ham against Man United uh, sticks against upset. seventh in the league. Would be, you know, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a serious upset uh, opportunity, and at the very least, would be a great match. But to me, this was really another tale of. The game is about the taking of chances. You know, if Jared Bowen takes his chance, it's on his right foot, not his preferred foot. But with him, I, I would have bet the house that he would score and make it 1-1. Instead, they go down the other end. Garnacho punishes West Ham for their profligacy. And in the end, Man United run out comfortable winners. Yeah, I was I was quietly impressed, you know, with, with our performance and there's something that Ten Hag has said for many, many weeks and months now is let me get my full strength squad. You know, in my first eleven again, you're gonna see a completely different side. And and you are seeing that. Um I think a big tactical change has been Garnacho going out to right wing. Uh, he has the ability to go either side. You know, a few of his goals now has been him coming on on his weaker foot and getting a strike on goal, kind of, you know, Ronaldo esque in, in, in his heyday. Um and there's just a lot more fluidity uh, and just seems a lot more natural in the way we are going at teams now. Um, and there's a much better balance from you know transitioning going forward as well as, as, as going backwards. Uh, I think Casemiro, obviously, with his experience and, and his reading of the game has helped us massively. We look a lot more assured at the back. Um, but it, it, was, it was, like you said, it, it was us taking our chances, which is something we haven't done for the majority of the season. And starting to actually play to the strengths of, of Hodgland. I thought his goal was fantastic. Um, he's been screaming at some of the players a lot more recently to actually feed him. And 
and, and, and make those better decisions in the wide areas. Um, and he, he's great at hold-up play. You've seen the potential. You've seen what he can do. And he's now just starting to click a little. Ten goals a season is it's not a bad, not a bad um, return. You know, for a young 20, 21-year-old striker that's coming into the league. Uh, and, you know, he's he's on his way to to getting, you know, 15, 20 goals, I think. And that would be a great first season for him. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Rashford, although he was probably one of the quietest out of the three, um, he was still a threat. And it, it just looked like things were starting to click a little now with United. Yeah, Marcus Rashford back in the team before his next night out in Siberia, I assume. <laughs> uh, but I think you're right to say to point out Casemiro is really the big addition. He looks fit again. His reading of the game, um, his intelligence as that deep lying midfielder was never in question. And now that he's paired that with, you know, the the requisite fitness to get around the pitch it's allowing Kobe Mainu to get a little farther forward uh, I like him in more of a box-to-box role mm-hmm. um, obviously he had the heroics against Wolves in midweek um, the story wasn't quite so rosy farther back though with uh, the loss of Martinez who it looks like the, the quote from Eric Ten Hag uh, about Lissandra Martinez is not great he great. said after the game that it's a, quote, personal disaster for Lissandro Martinez. Uh, and he suffered a very bad injury to what looked like his knee mm. uh, during Manchester United's 3-0 victory over West Ham. I mean, how big a blow is that potentially? I, I, I think that, as strange as it might sound, the key to Manchester United being much more interested in scoring goals recently is having their first choice left center back back in the team. Yeah, and that's exactly it. Um he he basically is the foundation to everything that we do possession wise as a as a team. Uh pairing him with Onana who, you know, loves to, to play those breaking passes from deep. He's so press resistant as well, Martinez, that it means that we can sustain pressure on teams in possession. Um and what he allows us to do is to have one of our fullbacks inverted and, and Dallow's playing that that role perfectly. He's both footedness is, is a great asset and that's why for me he would always be that pick up right right back ahead of Juan Bissaka, despite maybe some of his defensive frailties. Uh but but what Martinez allows us to do is, is like I said, have that sustained pressure um and the, the penetrative passes that feed straight into Fernandez and you know Luke Shaw and that that whole left hand side is our strongest weapon against teams um, and the rotation between uh, like I said Shaw Rashford Martinez um, and Bruno when he just finds pockets in that in those little in those little spaces you know is always hurts teams uh, and then being able to switch that play out wide to to Garnacho who can then take on any defender one v one. Um, and you know he, he's learning. He's still developing his game, Garnacho. You know it's not 100% refined just yet, but he's 19. So you know he he's still got a lot of things to improve. Decision making being the main thing for me, um, and just knowing when sometimes you just hold on to the ball and not always go forward. Um, but yeah, the the rotation and and just the way we are, our players are able to pick up the ball in, in different areas of of the pitch and, and look a bit more comfortable. It allows you know for sustained attacks. You know, when you, the moment you take out Martinez, you know you have a Maguire who's a lot more ponderous and 
just not as proactive in his passing. Um, you then have <clears throat> in our midfield McTominay, who again is not great on the ball, but he does have the great runs, you know, in, in into the box and third man runs for us to get those those last minute, you know, headers or, or strikes on goal. But a big part of our possession based football comes from from Martinez and it's gonna be a massive miss again. And I don't really know who we have that can replicate that. I think in the summer, that needs to be a position we find adequate cover for. Yeah, and on the flip side, I was not hugely impressed with West Ham today. I think they've had a great season. I wonder if they're they're starting to hit their ceiling in terms of what they can achieve in this league. Uh, Jared Bowen, you know, as I mentioned, failed to take his big chance. Normally, he's pretty lethal. Um, I thought Mohamed Kudus was lively, but I really thought that he was going to come back from AFCON with a vengeance. He was sort of limited here by, there just weren't many people to to combine with. They were moving the ball a bit slowly, even, you know, in the latter part of the first half, I thought West Ham got their foot on the ball, but it was a lot of, you know, Kurt Zuma kind of shuffling around and taking three or four touches, which drives me crazy when I see it among the Arsenal center backs. You need within two touches. You need to be spraying that out wide, yeah. or finding somebody. Uh, and it was just a bit slow and and ponderous from West Ham. I, I I just wonder. You know, I think Edson Alvarez was looking like a unit in midfield and is is a real uh, you know physical specimen putting in the shoulder barge challenges. Um, but I think they really need a Lucas Paqueta in there to. Uh, pull the strings and find those streaking runners in behind. And without it, they they just looked a little feckless here. Yeah, their midfield is very functional. Um, there's not a lot of creativity there outside of set pieces from Ward-Prowse. And I think the onus was on a breakaway from Bowen, um, which he did have that one opportunity. Or Kuz with, you know, just powering through and, and creating something almost out of nothing. Um there wasn't much build-up play from West Ham aside from just circling the ball, you know, from the centre-backs and into Alvarez and then back again. Uh, yeah, with, with a midfield of, of Suchek, Alvarez and and uh, Ward-Prowse, there's not a lot of ingenuity there. You know, you're not going to get someone that's going to feed an either needle pass or, you know, make a lofted ball into the channels for Kudus or, or Bowen to run into. So... I think it was one of those games that it was probably probably the best they could have really done outside of, like I said, set pieces. Uh, and I think that's another thing for West Ham to look at is their their threat going forward is massively, you know, decreased when when Paqueta's out. But you could probably say that about most teams. Number ten, you know, they are the most creative outlet for for most teams, but. You know, you like to think there'll be other opportunities or, or other players or other ways they can play to be still effective. Maybe push Bowen out wide um, and bring him through a centre forward with a bit of presence. You know, so West Ham again, I think it's a recruitment thing and and, a lack, and, and the injuries, but you know the substitutions that they brought on um, Maxwell Cornet, he he couldn't do anything either. So it's uh, yeah, it was tough showing for them. And then of course. Calvin Phillips came on to bolster the midfield, was yeah. booed by the Manchester United crowd, I guess, for his Man City affiliations. I mean, he's barely affiliated with Man City. Barely. <laughs> yeah, but Leeds as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but he came on and had an absolute disaster class, including 
again, wanting three touches in a Premier League midfield, you feel two men on you. I know that he hasn't been playing much, but this is very basic stuff. He gets absolutely robbed, uh, and United break away, and the game is finished. Uh, really poor showing from him, and and that's another one. You know, you mentioned Gareth South Southgate flying to Holland to go see Jordan Henderson play. <laughs> Calvin ha- is Calvin Phillips. I was going to say Calvin Harris. <laughs> Calvin Phillips going to be selected for England at the Euros. Maybe he'll have an ama- amazing second half of the season, but to me, if Southgate picks him and Jordan Henderson. It's just the ultimate, you know, anti-meritocracy in the England team. Yeah, that's that's it. Because Ward Prowse for me deserves a shout um, ahead of both of them. Uh, I, I think that midfield, it, it's quite clear if you're looking at form, and it's not just patches of form; it's throughout this season. So Rice, um, Bellingham, uh, Ward Prowse, Barkley for me. There's and, and and Colin Gallagher. Those are the standout midfielders, you know, English midfielders at the moment throughout the league and, and they definitely all deserve a shout ahead of ahead of Calvin Phillips and, and Henderson. But we all know that with with Southgate, he's he's got his favourites, you know, he's got the players that he believes understand exactly the way he wants his England side to play and irrespective of form that they're, they're gonna be there. So that is, you know, the Maguires and, and as well as, as Henderson. So I mean, yeah, his behaviour to go out to Holland is probably a big indication to where his head is at anyway with with the midfield he wants to go with leading into the summer and the Euros. Well, there will be a a few English internationals in our next set piece uh, for this week. It will be the top academy players, the top five in each of our humble opinions for our respective clubs. Manny with Manchester United, myself with... Arsenal, Manny, I invite you to start. Who are the top five Manchester United Academy players to emerge from that shop over the last decade? Over the last decade, this was quite quite difficult, to be honest with you. Um, so what I've decided to do is I've gone with not necessarily who I feel has the most potential or who I feel has the most ability, but who has probably performed consistently or have had big moments, you know, whilst playing you know, for United and just and just done themselves, you know, justice. And, you know, if they do leave United, they can hold themselves, you know, with their head held high. So for me, um, I've gone with Andreas Pereira, number five. 75 appearances in the first team, made his debut at 19 or 18. Um was has been part of you know probably some of the weakest United side in the past decade, but you know some notable you know performances against City, uh, against PSG in the Champions League, um, and he's gone on to have a pretty decent career. Um, but I think number five goes to Pereira. Number four, I've gone with Garnacho. A little bit premature. Uh, he's only been in the side I'd say what eighteen months, and this is probably his first full season. But I think his performances have been electrifying and they've been a real shining light in some really dark times in the past few years at United. And I think without him, he wouldn't have given as much United fans with as, as much hope as, as we've had recently. And he's really growing into becoming a star. Number three, I've gone with Lingard. Uh, Jesse Lingard's had some great purple patches for us, um, most notably under Mourinho. Uh, he's got you know FA Cup uh, goals 
uh, final goals for us. Uh, he's, you know, played in, in a number of positions. I remember he made his debut as a wing back under Van Gaal, uh, and then he'd gone on to be, you know, quite dependable at times. And he loves scoring against Arsenal, so definitely gets a, a tick for me with that one. Number two, controversially, Scott McTominay. Um, not my favorite player. I think he's very limited technically, but if you're looking at a player that has shown exactly what it is to to fight for a club that you've been at all your life, um, he knows his own limitations, but he's one of the hardest working players that I've seen come out of the academy, and he has come up with some very very big goals for us um, throughout his career. He's been dependable for the past four or five managers at United, um, and something that you know he's done well as those memorable games against City you know in that Mugfed partnership that saved us a lot of times so I've given it to McTominay and then number one obviously Rashford um yeah star boy making his debut getting a winner getting two goals in the Europa League following that up with two goals against Arsenal and consistently being our decision maker um you know match winner uh, yeah, the list goes on. So Rashford, number one. The past decade was difficult, but just a few notable mentions. Dean Henderson, um, Elanga, sure, yeah. yeah, James Garner, Angel Gomez, who's now thriving at Lille. I think he never got the opportunity he should have at United. Um, and even Brandon Williams, who's, you know, I think he'll have a very good career as a championships slash lower league Premier League uh, fullback. So, yeah, those are some of the names. The Arsenal job, was, there were quite a few choices and a couple that just barely fell outside our window. I was mm. eager to get Jack Wilshire and Serge Gnabry in there. Tried to sneak uh, them in. <laughs> yeah, Gnabry has gone on to a fantastic career after we totally pooched it and uh, got rid of him. And he went back to Germany when he was very young. But I think they both debuted just outside the window, especially uh, Jack was a little farther back. Um, so with that in mind, I would say my number five is Alex Awobi. Uh, he beats out uh, Reese Nelson, despite Reese Nelson's phenomenal goal against Bournemouth, one of the greatest Arsenal goals of all time. Um, I just think Alex Awobi has proven himself to be a Premier League player. He's not fit at the moment. Um, but I, I think he's quality and he, he's he's a good advertisement for the academy. He beats out Fuller and Balogun as well, who I just think still has something to prove, even if he's a very bright prospect. Um, you know, it will be good on the ball. Used to have a little bit more pace than he does now. He's sort of settled into a central midfield role, especially at Fulham and, and Everton, but a uh, decent player. Next up, Joe Willick, I think, has gone on to a pretty strong career at Newcastle. Again, having some fitness issues these days, but I think he's shown he was always a very good late runner into the box. There were hopes that he could fill a sort of Aaron Ramsey role. Uh, as a midfield goal scorer. And he scored a, quite a few goals for Newcastle. Um, maybe doesn't get into their first 11 anymore, but pretty good player and netted us a good chunk of cash. So did, so did Iwobi, actually. Yeah. Um, it's nice. As Arsenal, yeah, it's, for once, Arsenal actually sells someone at a profit. It's like, you know, that's <laughs> never happened before. 
but next up, Emil Smith Rowe. Mm-hmm. Oh no, I'm sorry. Next up is Eddie and Kedia. Okay. Um, who has proven to be a Premier League striker? Never, you know, my first choice to play. And I think, you know, in the second half of this season, we may discover that that we may discover that he's he's not Mikel Arteta's choice to play. I think, you know, it should be Gabriel Jesus when he's fit. Then it should be Kai Havertz, and third probably in the depth chart. Maybe fourth behind Leandro Trossard as a false nine would be Eddie Nketiah. But he's shown that he can score goals at a Premier League level. I think eventually he will make the move to a Crystal Palace, somebody mid-table, uh, and bang in plenty of goals. I think I think he'll be a good player. I just don't know that he's good enough for a team that's that's challenging for the Premier League and the Champions League, as Arsenal are hoping to do. But a good player and a true true academy kid. I think he joined when he was like nine years old. Um, or whenever he was cut from Chelsea, I think, um, hmm. for being too small. Just goes <laughs> to show you. Um, next up is the aforementioned Emile Smith-Rowe, one of my favorite players. I nearly got a Smith-Rowe jersey last year as I was caught up in the hysteria of Arsenal's title challenge. I ended up going the safe route with Martin Odegaard, which I think has been the better choice so far in terms of his longevity. Although the yeah. Smith Rowe number 10 kit is nice and he is a very nice player, very elegant, uh, not the fastest man in the world, but he has that unteachable, graceful quality to glide past people. He's a great combination player. I think he should be getting a lot more minutes as the number eight, as a left eight in this Arsenal team. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping, as I've said before, and maybe we're starting to see with the start that he got in midweek, that everything up to this point has been a sort of mental test created for him by Mikel Arteta, a motivational tool to challenge him to be the best version of himself that he possibly can. Um, you know, you hear all kinds of things come out of the leak out of the club, like over the years that maybe he doesn't have the same crazy drive uh, in, in his holistically in his life that the other kids that he came up with did. Yeah. Even a Gabriel Martinelli who's sort of taken his, his place on the left wing. I think that it's, uh, Smith Rowe should be playing inside anyway, and that they could play together. But I th- I th- I'm hoping that Arteta has been drawing out every ounce of desire so that he can be the best player he can be in the second half of the season, and he starts playing some solid minutes. I certainly yeah. like him better in that role than than uh, Havertz. I'd rather see Havertz at the nine. Um, and then finally, at number one, there was only ever one choice: Bukayo Saka. Edging towards a world-class player, maybe not quite there yet. Um, there's been a lot of talk that his performances haven't been the same as they were last season, but basically every team comes into the game deciding he's basically our LeBron James. Where yeah. It's like he is not going to beat us. He We're going to double-team him. He's going to need to pass the ball. Someone else needs to beat us. And I think he's adapted to that well. I think we saw that against Liverpool. We said, okay, we're going to overload the left side. And, you know, you don't have anybody to double up Martinelli over there. And then Saka can steal in and mm-hmm. get his goals and assists and, you know, say what you will about his performance levels. And I don't think they've been that bad, but he has gotten goals and assists at a consistent clip. I mean, but yeah. he's only behind a Mo Salah or an Erling Holland in terms of goals per game, goals and assists per game, consistent mm-hmm. production uh, that I think should be recognized because in the end, a player who turns in seven out of tens and gets you a goal every other game or an assist 
uh, one of those almost almost every game, uh, that's a valuable commodity. And so I think he's certainly the best that we've produced over over the last 10 years. Yeah, agreed. Is there anyone in your academy that's, that's touted to make it or, you know, the fans are excited about? You haven't had anyone come through probably since Saka, right? Yeah, since that Saka, Smith, Rowe, and Eddie and Kedia was a bit ahead of them, Reese Nelson a bit ahead of them, there hasn't been anybody. And, I, you know, people that know better than me about the Arsenal Academy, I, I was actually listening on my plane ride to L.A. about this, um, that there's just a bit of a gap. There's a generational gap until you get to Ethan Winery, who made his debut at 15, I think, to ward off interest from Man City who attempt yeah, to poach the contract. best youth players from everyone. Yeah. So he's in there. Um, there. There's a couple other kids in his age bracket, but, you know, even 17, uh, which I think Miles Lewis Skelly is another well-regarded academy kid. He's 17. He can't really play Premier League mm-hmm. football yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a bit of a gap. And it's also just more difficult to get into the, into the team now. You know, Man United probably wouldn't have – Garnacho in the team or, or as many or Kobe Menu in the team if they weren't in such a difficult period. You know, it's easier to get into that midfield over uh, Scott McTominay. Yeah, facts. Um, and, and I do think that it, it's almost been every every period where United have, have looked really bad or, or our manager has just looked like devoid of any ideas. There's been an academy player that's kind of shone through, that's come through all the mud to give us a bit of hope. It happened with Yanezai. Um, it then happened with Garnacho, and it's happened again now with Maynou. Um And it's almost, you know, a lot of United fans are now like, you know, even if we lose, at least we've got to watch Maynou play and get to watch him develop, you know, in, into becoming, you know, a great player. And I think uh, the reason Maynou was not, you know, in, in my top five, um, although I think ability-wise and ceiling-wise, I think he could, be on the same level, if not more, of Rashford in the next few years. I really think there's even a United captain there. Um, it's just you know he hasn't had that much that not much time in the um, in the side. But uh, yeah, I do think that a lack of quality and a lack of um, resistance to players in the first team does allow youth to come through now. Uh, and you know it, it, the threshold to become a first team player from the academy is a lot higher than it used to be, and you had a lot more time. Um, you know, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s to to have, you know, a young player kind of, you know, have his, you know, his breakthrough seasons and, and kind of, you know, break 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 water into, into the side. Um, you know, you look at players like McTominay, Lingard, they didn't really get into the United side until they were in the late 20s, you know, or sort of early 20s, 21, 22. Well, there were a couple more big matches on Sunday that we should run through. Um, of course, down in Italy, there was a top of the table. Internazionale hosted Juventus first against second. Um, two of the most effective teams in Europe. If you look at, uh, you know, the goals allowed, uh, how many, especially in the case of Juventus, how many close games they're grinding out, you know, 1-0, 2-1. Inter, on the other hand, are scoring bags of goals and yeah. conceding none. Um, they got 10 on the uh, across 22 games this season, and it was another clean sheet for Inter here. 1-0. Uh, they got it done when they needed to. I, I thought that this would be a close match just based on, you know, the form coming in. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, Inter consistently show an ability to win games and, and score goals as well, which is, you know, we used to think of Serie A as, as you know, the traditional calcio. Um, maybe Juventus have more of that than Inter, but Inter have scored 51 goals this season. They've scored in all 22 of their matches, and they've scored in every match, 30 straight league matches dating back into last season. So nobody can keep a clean sheet against Inter, and they seem to keep a clean sheet against everyone. Yeah, they are. You know, I didn't have them down as, you know, one of the contenders for the Champions League, but their their form throughout the season now makes you think, okay, they've got a real chance. And in football, if you're not conceding and you're scoring, that's that's what it's all about, really. Um, and I think Inzaghi is he's becoming a really top manager. You know, he kind of goes under the radar. He's not really spoken about as much as, you know, uh, Xabi Alonso and some of the other managers and, and young managers out in Europe. But, you know, he's he's getting a good, a good job done and he's found a system and a way of playing that gets the best out of players you wouldn't expect. You know, when, when you're seeing Damien and, and people like that in, in the side and still being really dependable, they've got great technicians in their midfield of Varela, um, and, you know, Lautaro Martinez, there's always been a question mark for me in terms of, is he world-class? Can he get to that world-class um, bracket? But, you know, in the league, in, in the Italian league over the past three three years at least, he's been consistently producing. Um, I just I just think that the difference is, does he have those defining game-winning moments, you know, in the Champions League, um, which for me is, is where you become a world-class player. Um but yeah, I mean, it was another one nil, um, consistent, you know, solid performance from them. Juve have have been have been good this season, um, and I think to not you know get any any goals just shows how how well drilled and how organised the Inter side is. Yeah, Lautaro, nineteen goals in twenty uh, Serie A matches, two in six in the Champions League this season. Um, yeah, I I just think they. Low key, it is low key, but I think that they are probably one of the four or five best teams in Europe. Um, we'll have to see if that pans out, but I think you know it's Barella in their midfield, it's Hakan Chalanalu, who uh is an amazing technician, deep lying playmaker. You know, AC Milan fans would find this sacrilege, but there is a you know Pirlo esque range of passing from the deep midfield. After Chalanoglu, of course, betrayed AC Milan and went across town to Inter. But he is a <laughs> hell of a player um, and a great uh, technician on set pieces, takes penalties. Would be a great fantasy player if I played fantasy uh, Serie A, I think. But, uh, yeah, true. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll have to see, we'll have to see about, about Inter and whether they can do it. As you say, is Lautaro the, the man to do it in the, in the knockout rounds? I think they've... They've been very smart moves. Um, mm. They're smart with their money down there. They have to be now. So, uh, you know, getting getting people on a free, as they've done, very effective. On the other side, Juventus, I think, are not good enough going forward to be a real force. They are going to say, I'm sure, towards the top of Serie A, but I think Inter are the prohibitive favorites at this point. You know, Dusan Vlahovic, a couple of years ago was one of the hottest striking prospects in world football. Probably. I mean, our, apparently the reports were he rejected Arsenal to go to Juve. Now I don't really see all that much special. He, he totally, 
fluffed his lines on the chance that he got here, even though he's been in decent form coming in. Huge balloon touch to uh, really blow a chance created for him by an American, Weston McKenney, who broke mm-hmm. through the uh, intermidfield and looked like a proper number eight at times in this one. He, he looked up to the challenge, and it is great to see American kids playing in matches like this. Uh, his his time in the Premier League with Leeds last season was not great, but I think Weston McKennie is one of those three or four players in the American side who's who's really quality. Yeah, and, and it's not often that you see a Juventus side actually that doesn't have world stars in, in there. Um, there's no one there that you automatically think, you know, I want, I would love to have that player in, in, in my team and it's almost they've, they've gone in a different route with trying to bring through a few more youngsters. Um, the academy style has always been been good, um, but yeah, McKenney is a real industrious force in, in that in that side, and it does you know it does have a, a, a lot of a lot to give. Um, technically, I think he's sound, but I think a lot more of his um, of his advantages and his uses is you know his reading of the game, his tackling, you know, covering ground, that sort of thing. Uh, and you made a great point about. Inter as well in terms of the signings that they make Inter have this ability to almost take other teams cast-offs or, or players that aren't really getting a look in and kind of like revitalizing their career almost and revamping them into you know into this new you know three five two formation that they have you know no one thought Damian you know we mentioned it already um Pavard's coming to the side Mkhitaryan who looked like his career was was finished after United have now just reinvented themselves to being, you know, top quality European players. Um, and and Marcos Turam, not the best of finishers, but his pace and and his direct running and his power is a perfect foil for someone like Lotaro Martinez. Um, so yeah, it's it's really astute signings, and uh, you know they've they've done really well in the transfer market. Uh, but I think Juve, um, they they're just going through. A period of just resetting their their club really. Um, I think they're they're a few years away from getting back to the summit of Italian, let alone you know European football. Yeah, Marcus Te- uh, Marcus Turam came on a free. He's got eight goals and seven assists this season for Inter. Just very astute signing. You you don't really see that kind of work in in the Premier League these days, where everybody is thirty million yeah. thirty million pound exactly. player. <laughs> There was another uh, big match on the continent, though, uh, the Madrid Derby. Uh, Real Madrid hosting Atletico, and it looked like, you know, Real was were going to eke this out. They probably had the better of it. I thought Brahim Diaz was fantastic, and he had a very good loan spell at AC Milan last season as well, but now he's getting minutes in the Real team, I guess, because Vinny was out. Although, you know, maybe it's Lucas Vasquez who came in, you know, was, was playing for that reason. Maybe Brahim Diaz would have played regardless because of his form. But he was running all over people and at one point had a very clever nutmeg uh, in the box on an, on an Atletico player that I really thought he was going to wrap that, wrap his foot around that and put it in the far corner to make yeah. it 2-0. But in the end, you know, Real sort of threw it away in stoppage time. You know, it wasn't the first... Uh, headed chance that Atletico had. This was much more of the Diego Simeone uh, side. You know, the it's the kind of thing you expect from a Simeone side, which we haven't seen all of this season. They've been playing a much more chaotic games than they used to. But here, 
they had a game plan of we're going to sit in and try and get our set piece opportunities. And they came away with a point because of it. Yeah, it, it was quite an evenly matched game. I thought um, there was a lot of uh, battles uh, that was going either either way for both sides. Um, it was a game that I didn't get to see the best of Jude. Um, I think with uh, Diaz uh, playing, it, it kind of he was drifting out wide a lot more, which forced Jude to almost be at times he was like the focal point um, in their attack. Uh, and I think he's, he's a bit better with being the link player um, and having runners ahead of him. Uh, but yeah, you know what you're going to get with Simeone's side. You know, they were dogged. Um, they were very well-structured um, when they were off the ball. And then they did break out in numbers. Uh, and I thought, yeah, their chances were going to come from wing-back play and getting crosses in. Uh, and like you said, a, a couple of times they, they could have snuck in um, a chance here or there, or even from set pieces, but it was it was you know some some games. Although there's not a lot of goals in there, it's it's it was it was a good contest to watch, um, and and just seeing two very different styles, um, two very different setups, and, and how they competed. Uh, and I think I was surprised to see how how hard a team Real actually worked. You know, having that diamond midfield means there's a lot of ground they have to cover, especially um, space out wide. So, yeah, it, it was a good game to watch. And, and I think they just didn't hold out, uh, unfortunately. And it was, it was a bit of a sloppy goal, you know. I think those kind of headed chances, it just seemed that um, Laurenti wanted it more, you know. he, uh, I think Nacho tried to stick a leg out to, to clear it, but, you know, he didn't put his head on there. He didn't put his body in front. Um, and, and they got their just reward for a hard-fought battle. Yeah, I think uh, Real's substitutions didn't necessarily help them. I mean, far be it for me to to criticize Luka Modric, one of the best players of his generation. Uh, but when he came on, it felt like they lost a bit of the physicality that sets them apart in La Liga. I think Atletico maybe are one of the few teams that can match them from a physical standpoint, which did yield some of the battles you mentioned. But yeah, it just felt like some of the urgency and physicality came out of their game in the last 10 minutes going into including uh, a stoppage time, and they threw it away. And that, those are two big points dropped as Real trying to hold off the Cinderella story of Hirona, who I believe they're playing in a couple weeks. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, they could have used those two points as they, they try and make sure that only, you know, reinforce the idea that only two teams are allowed to win La Liga. And <laughs> Hirona are not, uh, not uh, included in that club. Yeah, I, I, it would be a great a great story, um, reminiscent of when Valencia uh, won the league title under uh, Benitez. You know, in, I think it was two thousand and two. Um, but yeah, I think it was two points dropped, especially when you do concede so late in a game. Uh, the the substitution didn't help, and, and you're probably thinking that Modric is, is brought on to try and keep the get keep the ball, um, keep possession, and and stifle any opportunities. The team have um, the opposition have, but yeah, it, it just it didn't mean that they were on the back foot physically, um, and they were running you know running towards goal a, a, a bit more. Um, Jocelyn up front as well. He doesn't have the legs. He's not particularly fast on the break, so they didn't have that outlet ball that that Diaz was was giving as well. So from both sides of the pitch, it did look like Real did lose lose you know that athleticism and that and that speed. Um, and I think just gave Atletico a bit more 
impetus to to you know have a have a last ditch chance and and they put it away. Well, we'll see. I'm realizing that it. it I think it's Girona because it's Catalan, not Spanish. So mm. maybe I got it wrong with Girona. But we'll see if <laughs> uh, if they can keep Real honest in this title race because Barcelona are clearly out of it. Atletico, yeah. I don't think they're. I think Atletico are looking at the Champions League qualification. So somebody needs to keep Real honest in that league because otherwise they, then they can just devote all their energy to the Champions League, which I do not want to see as someone mm. who could draw them in the quarters. Um, but, you know, there's, we do have time for one more match. Uh, <laughs> we always make time to laugh at Chelsea <laughs> and we return to England for, you know, one of the early games on this Super Sunday uh, in which Chelsea went ahead and then it really fell apart. Uh, and I think it was a showcase of Chelsea's frailties, but also that Wolves are quite a good side. And I, I think both of us have thought that for a while. Yeah, they are a good side. And they've got, they did make some of the players look, look better. Um, I think that Neto in a false nine that he's been playing uh, with the absence of, of Ch- Chan, I think, uh, and that plays out in uh, South Korea. Um He's he's done well. Um, and he's a great dribbler. He runs into space well. Uh, great one v one as well. So he yeah, he looked good, and it was a good foil for for Cunha to get his hat trick. You know, uh, but Chelsea is is almost comical now. I mean, some of the goals that they concede, you know, two of them, you could say that a bit of bad luck, um, you know, deflecting off the off the two defenders, but. It happens almost every week, you know. It it just looks like once there's a little slip here, then the whole side comes crumbling. And Caicedo, it was almost a Jekyll and Hyde performance from him there. You know, the the pass to pick out uh, Cole Palmer for the for the opener was fantastic, and then he's caught on the ball for the equaliser from um or, or, or sorry for Wolves' first goal. So he's really looking like a bit a bit of bad business, man. For over a hundred million, and and he's consistently making mistakes. That's costing. That's costing Chelsea. Yeah, I'm convinced that Edu and Mikel Arteta had this grand plan where they were going to <laughs> have a smoke screen where they would loudly, you know, leak to the press that they were after a player. Wait for Todd Bowley to come in and spend a hundred million, and then go get somebody else who's actually better. It happened with <laughs> Mikhailo Mudrik. We ended up getting Leandro Trossard, who scored a great goal to to put it away against Liverpool today. And, you know, comparing Caicedo to Declan Rice, there's not a big comparison to make. Uh, so yeah. far, Declan Rice, one of the signings of the season, no matter the price, Caicedo, considering the price, a bit of a disaster. Um, yeah. But there's really nobody in the Chelsea team that comes out to me as particularly, like, dignified or... Um, uh-huh. With having the proper mentality, I think uh, Cole Palmer is the real deal, especially in those central positions where both of us have said we like to see him play. He had some sweet, you know, even once they went down, he had some sweet turns, taking mm-hmm. the ball in the half turn, uh, clever use of his body, and, and a pretty delicate touch. And I think Tiago Silva is, you know, he scored the consolation, but he's also just their only dependable defender who you know is going to do his job and give you a seven out of 10. Um, and I think after the wife is after the game, his wife tweeted that something about something needs to change. Uh, oh, wow. I'm sure it's been okay. now, but <laughs> you know, 
if you've lost the Silva household as Chelsea manager, you know, does that mean that Mauricio Pochettino is cooked? He, he's surely, he's been in the oven for a little bit. He's, for a while, he's the, yeah. The temperature yeah. is rising. Yeah, it's been roasting for a little while for him. Um, and I, I just don't see how Chelsea turned this around, if I'm being perfectly honest. You know, they've, they spent a lot of money. They've changed manager. They've, they brought in, you know, more English players to play through. They've bought, they've had more of the European players play. They've, it just seems like whichever way they go, it's just nothing, nothing is clicking. And you have to think is it can't just be the manager, but then at the same time, it, it can't just be the players, you know? Um, I, yeah, I, I think they're going to struggle. Um, I think where they're at right now is not just a fair position for them, but it's also deserved, you know? Um, they, they, they don't really look like a side that even have the fight to try and turn it around themselves. Um, so, yeah, Cole Palmer is probably the only shining light. And he almost seemed like he's just playing for himself and for his own pride and, and his own sp- uh, place in that England squad. But Sterling doesn't seem, you know, that bothered half the time. Um, I know it's it's difficult to be able to read body language, but you know, as fans, we have to deduce from from what we can see, um, and it just doesn't look it doesn't look great for them. And, and Enzo Fernandez as well, he was a big summer signing that came in, and he's he's someone that I can see just probably thinking, oh, mate, this is this is long. Let me let me go back, you know, to Spain or go to Portugal and and just play with. Maybe people that, that give a shit, you know. It, it just seemed very much like Chelsea are just going through it until the season's over and then probably a new manager will come in. Yeah, the vibes just are not right. And I mean, this Chelsea made Mateus Cunha... Chelsea made uh, Mateus Cunha look like Kylian Mbappe or something. Yeah. He was running all <laughs> over them, sweeping home these, you know, graceful finishes as he just chews them up. And of course, Pedro Neto is going to chew them up because he, mm-hmm. I think, is one of the top wingers in the league. And yeah. once he was, you know, getting past their midfield and running at their back line, they were quaking in their boots. Um, fantastic player to watch. And Wolves are a fun team to watch. You know, I think mm-hmm. Gary O'Neill runs a nice ship over there. And, the, you know, it's clear that Chelsea have more talent, but there's something in the water. I mean, you look yeah. at Caicedo, he's, he has a miserable time, gives the ball away for one of these goals and he he barely tracks back he's running alongside the man with the ball but there was never that feeling that you always get from Declan Rice that he's doing everything busting every like ounce of his gut to get around between the man with the ball and the goal stick a leg in stop him make sure that he is not going to get into the penalty area just you know there was sort of a half-hearted challenge after Caicedo was the guy who lost the ball it's just Mm -hmm. a terrible look it doesn't suggest to me that Pochettino has the full buy-in, but, you know, is it really his fault? I mean, all these guys were signed to eight-year contracts as 20-year-olds, and there's no real leadership beyond Thiago Silva. Yeah, that's it. And I'm, I'm hearing shouts that you'll probably get the sack and Mourinho's going to come in to finish the rest of the season. And that's not a bad shout, you know, but with this current crop of, of youngsters and, and the current modern footballer, I just think Mourinho is a dinosaur in, in, in modern football, unfortunately, and I just don't think his his old methods are really going to work, especially with the young squad that, that Chelsea have. You know, I think he had a bit more experience in, in Roma um, and for a short period it worked, but 
they've, they've got real problems. Um, but yeah, I mean, to focus on Wolves, I think they're exciting side. Um, and I think with, again, with the right investment, they could become, you know, a top eight side. Uh, I, I really do think they've got some great players in that side that, that, that has real quality. Um, but, it's, you know, with, with the weaker side, it's always about, you know, keeping a clean sheet um, because it's, they still look like, you know, conceding, you know, a, a lot of chances. But they do have great, great players going forward. Yeah, well, we'll have to see if they are the last side to make Chelsea look silly. Looks like Chelsea have Aston Villa in an FA Cup replay, fourth round replay. Then Crystal Palace, which you think would be winnable with the state that Crystal Palace are in, sinking down the league. But Roy Hodgson does know how to get a result. And that feels like the kind of game that could be could be the end the for the yeah, but you never know. And if they survive that, then they have City after that. So <laughs> you know, we will be happy to get them at some point. I have no doubt about it. 